So good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's Q&A on science communications with New York Times health and science reporter, Apoorva Mandavili. My name is Aditi Nayak. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the president and editor-in-chief of Amherst STEM Network. I will be moderating tonight's discussion with Grace. Hello, everyone. My name is Grace Kiganage. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the media coordinator for ASN, and I will also be moderating tonight's talk. Tonight's event will be an hour-long Q&A. We will begin with questions for you to learn more about Apoorva's story and her approach to science journalism. Then we will turn to audience questions. If you have a question for Apoorva, feel free to put it in the chat at any time. Aditi and I will ask questions from the chat during the audience Q&A section. If you would like to unmute and ask a question, please wait until the audience Q&A section where we will explain how to do so. This event is hosted by the Amherst STEM Network. Now for context, ASN is the college's student-run online science communications platform. ASN is dedicated to making STEM research opportunities and resources on campus accessible to everyone, regardless of their scientific background. This mission to make science understandable and exciting motivates our team in the articles, podcasts, graphics, and videos we create. Tonight, we are incredibly excited and grateful to welcome Apoorva Mandavili, a role model to many of us, as she makes complicated science topics accessible to a wide audience daily. Apoorva is an award-winning science journalist for the New York Times, where she mostly writes about infectious diseases. She's also written for The Atlantic, The New Yorker Online, Nature, Scientific American, among many other publications. She is the 2019 winner of the Victor Cohn Prize for excellence in medical science reporting. Additionally, she has won awards from the Association of Healthcare Journalists, the American Society of Journalists and Authors, the S Society of Environmental Journalists, the South Asian Journalists Association, and News Women's Club of New York. We could go on and on about Aquarva's accolades and impact, but we only have one hour, so we'll leave it here and say thank you to Aquarva for joining us tonight. Thank you all so much for that very kind introduction. It feels a little strange to hear uh, yourself described as a mentor or role model for anybody because it doesn't seem like that long ago that I was an undergrad in a liberal arts college, much like you are. Um, in fact, one of my college classmates is listening, it's Grace's father. So it feels like it wasn't that long ago that I was at college, but um, as uh, they mentioned, I am a reporter at the New York Times um, and I cover science and global health, which at the moment is really just COVID. But um, once the pandemic winds down, I'll start to go back to reporting more about HIV and TB and malaria and other infectious diseases. Um, but before I came to the New York Times, which I really just uh, joined last May because of COVID and to report on COVID, I had been freelancing for the New York Times for a couple of years, but I was running a new site on autism science. So I made a pretty big switch from neuroscience to infectious diseases. Um, but infectious diseases has always been my first passion. That's how I started out in journalism. And I'm happy to answer any questions about how I went from being a liberal arts um, college student with a major in chemistry and then went to grad school in biochemistry and have somehow ended up as a journalist at the New York Times. So um, take it away with the questions. That's incredible. So to start, we would love to know how you got into science journalism in the first place. Did you always know you wanted to be a science journalist or what did your path to this career look like? 
So I did not know that I wanted to be a science journalist. In fact, I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to be a scientist. I was a chemistry major in college. I did research every single summer. Um, I applied for grad schools and went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison for uh, biochemistry. And I was all set to get a PhD and spend my career as a research scientist. But um, somewhere along the way, I realized that uh, research just didn't really excite me, that it was a little too unsocial and a little narrow in focus that I would become just an absolute expert in cholesterol transport, which is what I was studying, but I wouldn't know very much about the rest of science. And it seemed like a real shame to give up all the things that I was interested in learning about science for this one niche topic. And as I started to sort of tap into why I was so dissatisfied, um, I had some clues um, and really Thanks to having been at a college where I took a lot of different classes, I remembered that, you know, I had taken a senior level seminar in Milton and um, a, a class on the English novel and all these classes that only English majors took, but I just talked my way into. So that was a clue that I really wanted to be doing something with science and English or literature or something along those lines. And I did not know at the time that um, there was such a thing as science journalism. This is in the era when the internet was very new because I'm ancient. So uh, it didn't really occur to me that this is something I could do for a living. But I came across um, Deborah Blum, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning science journalist and now a friend. But at the time, I was just awestruck and starstruck by her. And I came across a book she had written and I was just blown away and really quite enamored of the idea that you could do this for a living. So that's how I ended up in science journalism. That is very cool. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, but um, so for undergrad, you went to Augustana College, which is a liberal arts college in Illinois. So how did the liberal liberal arts education play into your journey to science journalism and finding what you wanted to do? I think there's really nothing more important than when you're young and trying to figure out what you want to do to take as many different classes as you can. I mean, I had this idea that I already knew what I wanted to do. I was pretty single-minded. I was, you know, extremely sure of my career path. But as I discovered a little bit later, not even that many years later, it's it was really not enough for me. And it wasn't going to satisfy me intellectually or emotionally. Um, and I think if I had not had a very broad-based education where I had allowed my brain to absorb and be exposed to lots of different things, I wouldn't have had a really good sense of what I like and don't like, what I'm good at and not good at. I would have only known about the science and nothing else. Um, so as it was, I could sort of look back and think about what classes did I find the most exciting? Where was I the most alive and interested and engaged? And that really helped me figure out um, this amalgam career path that I didn't even know existed. That's incredibly reassuring to hear about your path from a liberal arts college to where you are today. Now, at Amherst STEM Network, we find that a very difficult part of science reporting is making complicated science topics accessible, especially when you as the reporter are learning about these topics for the first time while reporting on them. So we must ask, how do you make complicated topics accessible and engaging to a large audience? 
I mean, this is the million dollar question. If I knew the exact answer to that, um, I wouldn't need an editor and I could just, you know, sit down at a desk and out would pour the best prose. Um, I think the key is to really think about what the reader doesn't know, to never assume that they already know what you know, to start with the very basic questions and to think about also what they don't need to know. I think one of the the problems in early science journalists that I've seen, um, and that's mainly because I've spent most of my career as an editor rather than a reporter, is that people want to tell you everything they know in a story. And they want to tell you all the technical details they heard about and every single um, nitty gritty sort of niche item that, that caught their fancy. And so it's super important to step back and think about what is it I want the reader to know from this and what does not matter. It doesn't matter that I think it's interesting, but this really isn't relevant to the story. So it's, it's just helpful to, to picture a reader. So this is something we do all the time. And I've done a lot when I've freelanced for different publications is you try to think about who is the target audience for that publication. And you try to picture, in my case, now that I'm at the New York Times, I think about I don't know, um, a 35-year-old man in Iowa. And what does he want to know about when I'm writing about this particular topic? And I try to go only as deep as that and satisfy that much curiosity and don't sort of nerd out too much. That's very interesting, finding the balance between um, what you think the public needs to know and what you're excited about. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, you mentioned this before, prior to writing about COVID, you also founded Spectrum, which is the news platform that focuses on sharing accurate autism research. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what Spectrum is and what inspired you to create it? Yeah, so I was at Nature, which is a science journal, um, which you might all know if you're part of a STEM program. And I was um, the new editor for Nature Medicine, which is a sister journal. And I did a lot of writing for Nature as well. And I was doing a lot of reporting on infectious diseases, editing and writing both. And I had been there for about five years. And this is where, you know, it really starts to intersect with how you balance um, your life as a journalist when you are a woman with how, you know, you want to have a family and you want to have children. So that was a point in my career when I didn't want to be traveling two weeks of every month. I really wanted, you know, I was engaged. I wanted to get married and have children and be somewhat available with my family. Um, and around that time, the Simons Foundation, which is a nonprofit that funds a lot of science, approached me and offered a job as a communications director. Um, and I don't know if you all are aware of this, but communications is very different from journalism. It's, it's basically where you're a mouthpiece for the organization, and that is not something I wanted to do. So instead, I pitched them the idea of a news website that would do what they had wanted to do, which is disseminate information about autism research. Um, and I said I could do that, but with journalism and that it would be more credible because it didn't come with the bias of the organization itself. And they bought it. The Simons Foundation is funded by billionaires. It's um, funded by an endowment from, from Jim and Marilyn Simons, who are two of the richest people in the country. Um, and so they had a lot of money and they um, were very interested in serving this community. And it started out with just me and a few freelance writers, a couple really to begin with. And then 
it grew as the website gained credibility and they could see that it was gaining a real audience and that um, scientists in the community really appreciated the information that they were getting, they gave me a bigger and bigger staff. And by the time I left um, in May, it had grown to 13 people. So it's a website that uh, delivers autism news to autism researchers, but also just neuroscientists in general. And this is, I think, another thing that's unusual about my background, but I find actually has been very helpful to me in my career is that um, in journalism, trade press gets a bad rep. It's this is when you write for scientists or you write just for businesses or something like that, a very niche sort of um, journalism. But I've found that as a science journalist, there could have been no better training ground because I learned how scientists think. I learned what is accurate and what's not accurate and, and to be extremely careful when you're writing for scientists there is zero room for error or you lose your credibility completely so i think that made me a very careful journalist it made me very aware of all the concepts in science and how to get them right and how to ask the questions to get the information i needed from scientists basically it helped me learn their lingo um so that's and and you know i handed that off now to Ivan Oransky, who's a fantastic journalist and the founder of a website called Retraction Watch, which if you don't know it, you should check out. It's basically where they track all the retractions in scientific papers, which is pretty cool. Um, and yeah, so he's uh, the editor-in-chief of Spectrum now. That's incredibly insightful to learn. And again, switching gears a little bit to one of your other um, endeavors, so in addition to being a science journalist, you started many initiatives to increase diversity in science journalism. Um, for the audience, you, have, you were a member of the National Association of Science Writers, where you were a founding co-chair of the Diversity Committee. With your colleague Nidhi Subraman, you also launched Culture Dish, a nonprofit dedicated to enhancing diversity in science journalism. So what inspired you to start these initiatives and how can we improve diversity in science journalism. So there's a, a neat little origin story to those organizations. And that is that I'm gonna say in 2014 or maybe 2013, I went to a meeting of the National Association of Science Writers. And this is, you know, this, this membership group of all the science journalists across the country, or not all, but a lot of science journalists across the country. And every year this meeting was the sort of uh, ground for people to you know, make new connections. If you're a freelancer to meet editors, to see your friends in the community. And I had gone almost every year, um, but I had had a couple of kids. And so I hadn't gone in two or three years. And then I went to this meeting and I think it was 2013. And I had been in the business already at that point, you know, 13, 14 years. So I knew a lot of people and I was making my way around and saying hello to everybody. And as I did that, it occurred to me that there was not a single brown face or black face near me. It was just all just a sea of white. And I wrote a story after I came back from that meeting called Alone in a Room Full of Science Writers. And it was basically about being the only brown person in this um, journalism conference. And I knew for a fact that there were more of us. Um, and as I started to, to talk to people in the community, it became very obvious that some of them had actually come to previous meetings, felt very unwelcome, felt, you know, like a fish out of water and had never come back. And 
um, it turns out that science journalism was very clicky and it was particularly clicky back then. So this article that I wrote really struck a nerve. It made the National Association of Science Writers very defensive. I had all the past presidents reach out to me to say, we've made a lot of efforts over the years. You know, it just hasn't taken for whatever reason. Um, note, though, that all the efforts were made by white people. So, it, of course, it didn't. And um, they were just not really giving me good answers for how they made people feel welcome when they came to this meeting. And one of the people who reached out to me after that story came out, it was just a huge outpouring from the community of like, thank you so much for writing the story. This is exactly how I felt and things like that. And one of them was Nidhi Subaraman, who's um, now a reporter at Nature. And she said, you know, she really related to that. We talked on the phone, we really hit it off and we decided to create Culture Dish and became this organization where we could um, highlight the work of other, you know, journalists of color, um, showcase sort of job opportunities, you know, give people a place to sort of connect and um, just know that they're part of something bigger. And as um, the National Association of Science Writers felt a bit I think abashed by what we did, a little embarrassed. And they reached out to us and asked if we could actually start this diversity committee and fold culture into that. We weren't quite comfortable with doing that entirely. Um, so we kept culture separate, but we did start the committee and now they're linked. But if ever um, culture dish were to feel like the association no longer represents its best interests, they could still separate. So that's kind of how we set it up. Um, so we started this diversity committee and we did a bunch of things in the few years that Nidhi and I were co-chairs. We started a diversity mixer, which happens on the first night of the conference so that, um, you know, everybody who is a minority and people who are not can come to the diversity mixer and it gives people, okay, you know, you've made a few connections, it's a smaller group of people, you meet some people and now those are the people that you might see elsewhere in the conference and you feel like you have a friend or a familiar face at least. Um, that started out and the very first year we had I think 80 people there and the next year it was like 200 it became sort of a fixture of the conference to the point where the um, association made it a permanent part of the agenda and set aside budget for that mixer so that was really great the first year we had to apply for a special grant to do it and after that it became sort of part of it um, the other thing we did was started a scholarship fund we started a, a sort of fellowship fund for anybody who independently got an internship but just couldn't afford to move to New York and live on nothing while they did that internship because the pipeline was a huge problem. So we started that with um, two fellowships and now it's grown to four. So, um, and uh, we've handed off Culture Dish and the Diversity Committee now to, I think it's on its third set of co-chairs after we left. So it's it's become a really sustainable fabulous committee they've done more and more work and they're they're just doing a really great job that's absolutely incredible and i think i speak for all of us when i say i really admire and appreciate you putting in that work to diversify science journalism um, now that the audience has had some time to get to know you a bit more we would like to transition to questions from our audience now as grace mentioned earlier feel free to message any questions you may have in the chat and we will ask these questions on your behalf. But if you would like to unmute and ask Apoorva a question yourself, please use the raise hand function on Zoom and we will call on you to ask this question. 
Now, while people are asking questions, we were also wondering, what does a typical day as a science journalist look like? <laughs> oh, um, that really depends on the day. Every day is variable. I mean, the, the most striking thing about being a, a newspaper reporter and a daily newspaper reporter is that I never know what I'm doing from day to day. I just don't have any um, you know, information about what my week looks like a few weeks from now. So, you know, I have a lot of events like this one where I'm on a panel or I have to do a radio show or whatever, things like that, that are a half an hour here and an hour there. But the bulk of the day, I really don't know what the day is going to look like until I'm almost there um, or maybe even on the day itself. So um, yesterday, for example, I had a very uh, sort of big story break and I spent a lot of time on Twitter responding to people's questions. Um, and I, I started to work, you know, on my next story. Today, I basically spent my entire day doing radio. So if I'm a little tired, that's partly why I've been talking pretty much all day. Um, and tomorrow, I will spend my entire day working on my next story, which is um, about the, the need to have patent waivers for these vaccines that are um, not available to the majority of the world. So, and then, you know, Thursday and Friday, I might spend more time reporting on the next story after that. So every day is a bit of a mix of a little bit of writing, a little bit of reporting. Some days are more reporting heavy. Some days are more writing heavy. And some days I'm just recovering from a blitz of reporting and writing and just sort of in a coma on Twitter for most of the day. So it looks like we have a question from Sarah. So how do your New York Times story idea, oh, actually wrong question. What story have you covered that you've been most passionate about? That's a really good question and it's hard to pick. It's like picking your kids. Um, there are a few, I suppose. One of the first ones that I wrote, um, you know, I don't know if you know the difference between long form and sort of shorter news articles. So now I'm writing mostly news and I don't write a lot of longer things. But um, for a few years, I was doing only long form. So we, these are stories that are, you know, three, four or five thousand words. And they have people in them who are protagonists that you can sort of follow along. And um, when I was at Spectrum, I wrote a story about women with autism called The Lost Girls. And that was I, I've never really, that story has never left me because it was a, um, a story where I met this young woman called Maya who lives in the UK and she is on the autism spectrum and she did not know that until she was in her, you know, 20s. Um, and so through her story, I was able to sort of talk about how uh, autism is underdiagnosed in, in girls because people are really thinking about it only in terms of what it looks like in boys and it actually presents differently in girls. And so she went through her life with all these different diagnoses, misdiagnosed, prescribed the wrong kind of medications, really thought something was wrong with her, but didn't know what, depressed, anorexic, suicide attempts, you name it. Like she just went through hell and it took forever for her to get to a point where she was actually diagnosed and that made all the difference. All of a sudden she understood herself. Um, so she was the main protagonist in that story, but I also talked to a couple of other people one of whom was um, a young girl at the time and another one who was in a, an institution in, um, in her 20s, but cared for by, uh, you know, people in that institution and by her mother. And so I was trying to sort of showcase people across different parts of the spectrum from somebody who needs very little support, 
like Maya to somebody who needs round the clock support. Um, and that story had a big impact, but also it was just, I, I think very um, moving for me to be allowed into that kind of experience and to really learn about somebody's life so thoroughly. That's very interesting. Um, moving on to, there's a question from Dawn, which is how do your New York Times story ideas come into being? Are they pitched or assigned to you or are most of your stories your own ideas? Um, most of them are my own ideas at this point, especially. Um, I think when I started in May, there was so much news and we as a team, as a desk, you know, there's about a dozen people um, who were all covering COVID at the time. And as a, as the desk, we needed to make sure that we were covering all these stories that were happening very, very fast. So for about a month and a half after I started, there were a lot of stories that I was getting assigned, like, you know, sit through this World Health Organization um, meeting and, you know, see what they're saying or, you um, <clears throat> go to the CDC briefing, which, you know, there weren't that many at the time, but um, just things that we needed to report, basically, and it was sort of all hands on deck, but that's really not my strength. I do best with um, enterprise stories. It's not that I don't do well on the daily stories, but it's, you know, it's not, it's a waste of my, I think, um, what I can do. And so I um, basically uh, talked to my editor, and we shifted so that there were other people whose job it was to listen to those things. And I spent most of my time trying to think of science ideas that nobody else was going to be looking at. I think that, you know, I had an advantage as somebody who does understand science to be able to sort of think about story ideas that the average newspaper reporter wasn't necessarily going to go after. So I've been able to keep that up since then. And so I, um, I have a Google doc that I share with my editor and basically up until I would say six weeks ago, it had a minimum of 14 stories at a time on it of things that I wanted to get to. Now, finally, it's down to like nine or 10 that I'm working on at any given time. So I've become a little less ambitious, but it's still a lot of stories. So um, if you're thinking about going into journalism, this is actually a good tip. If you don't want to be assigned stories, have so many ideas that your editor doesn't have time to assign you a story. You are just too busy producing stuff of your own. That is a very great tip. Thank you for letting us in on the secret. Um, <laughs> we have another question here from Nicholas, which is, has the degree of diversity and inclusion in the science reporting field finally become better or is it still changing? Has that diversity brought any changes in what's reported on and how it's reported on or general reporting attitudes? I think it has changed for the better, but we are not, you know, it is still changing and we still need a lot to happen. Um, I think there is a lot more diversity, but it's primarily among Asian Americans. There's not as many Black Americans, for example. There's hardly any Latin American, um, Latinx people in the science journalism community. There are some, but most of them are actually in Latin America. There are not that many in the U.S. who are um, working, and um, it's still just very small numbers. And that affects what stories we tell. So, for example, in this past um, year, you know, we've heard a lot about uh, racial inequalities and racial disparities and how COVID affects different populations. And we've, we're now looking at how, um, you know, the lack of vaccine access is playing out. But I'll give you one very simple example, and that's very 
current about how this plays out. There is a myth now, uh, and I think it's finally going away, but there has been a myth for the last couple of months that the reason there are such low rates of vaccine uptake in um, communities of color is because they are inherently mistrustful of the establishment, that they very legitimately um, are you know, uh, afraid of the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. No doubt that plays a role. But the real issue is actually that the government has not made very good attempts to get the vaccine to those communities. Every time they have actually tried to have a pharmacy in a community like that offer vaccines, the white people from nearby neighborhoods have actually driven into those neighborhoods and gotten the vaccines. There are no mobile units in most of those communities. There are not even enough pharmacies at a local level in those communities. And there have really not been enough outreach efforts from people that that those communities trust to tell them, you know, this vaccine is good. I've taken it. It's okay. It's safe. You know, that's really what needs to happen. So there was a lot of blaming the mistrust and assigning all of the the low vaccine uptake to that as the issue rather than addressing these much more practical and severe disparities in who can afford to take a day off work and who can afford to go stand in line and get a vaccine. And that's something that uh, only a reporter who knows something about those communities would probably think about. It took a lot longer for most magazines and papers to get there. Uh, yeah, that's definitely something that we as a society need to work on in general. Um, another question from Chaya. Um, first, a uh, two-part question. First of all, how much time do reporters get on a story for um, that you write for a newspaper? And then after you write the story, what is the process before it is published for the New York Times? Um, okay, so the first question, how long does how long do you get? That really depends on what the story is. So um I'm pretty fast at writing a new story, like a very straightforward, this happened kind of story. So some of those, it's like same day, you know, this is happening. And I might tell my editor, I saw something on Twitter and I immediately start to text my sources and I have filed a story um, as quickly as an hour and a half or an hour after I heard about it. Um, You know, a long story. If it's short, if it's um, 300 words, we have this thing called a live briefing where we just write these little blurbs of what's happening. If it's just something like that, that's 300, 350 words that can happen in 15 minutes. So um, it depends on what it is. If it's a fully reported story, let's say 800, 1,000 words, and you actually have to call some people and and, um, get it together, an hour to hour and a half is the shortest. Um, Otherwise, maybe a day um, for a news story. That's about as long as I take anyway, because usually what I like to be working on is these enterprise stories. They're stories that take a little more digging, are a little bit more insightful and, um, you know, take more time. Um, The story that I wrote uh, that went into the paper yesterday, um, because it was a front page story and because there was a lot of interest from the New York Times masthead, something like that gets a little bit more time. So I had, you know, a week and a half, two weeks to report that one. Um, and what happens after you file the story? So that also depends on how long it is. If it's a straightforward news story, it goes right to my editor. Um, he edits it. And then it goes to what we call a second read, which is um, somebody who's not even associated with the science desk and just reads it for clarity and grammar and you know, style and all that. Um, and then it goes, it gets published with something like the story from yesterday, because it's a front page story, it goes through like 
a lot of people. Um, it was edited by my editor. It was then edited by the Sunday paper editor because originally it was supposed to go on Sunday. Then it was looked at, even though I don't see these comments directly, they're all talking to my editor. Um, there are other, you know, managing editor and then Dean Beckett was the editor, you know, the chief editor in chief, like everybody looks at a story like that. And all those comments filter to my editor who very kindly shields me from most of that, um, and makes the changes, but it, it, you know, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen for something like that. So it really varies. It sounds like you and your editor just make a great team when you're putting all these articles out there. Um, we do yeah, he's wonderful. Person. He's really wonderful. I think um, having a good editor is like the number one thing to being happy at a place like the Times. It's you you can have an editor who really gets you and who's supportive and um, you know knows enough science to not completely ruin your story, um, or you could get a you know an editor who's really hard and harsh and and could make your life hell. Uh, so I'm very lucky. I have an amazing editor. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were actually an editor yourself before you had gone into reporting. So how would you compare those two experiences and which did you enjoy more? Oh, I definitely enjoy being a reporter more. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of puzzled as to why it took me so long to come back. Because, you know, I started off as a reporter. And as with many fields, when you're good at something, you just keep getting promoted. And you have to really stop yourself at some point and think, do I even want this promotion? Do I want to go up the ladder? Because in journalism, that ladder only goes towards editing. You, you know, there's no ladder for reporting. You're either a reporter or maybe you're a senior reporter and you get to pick your assignments. But there's no, you know, career path per se for that. Um, so I became an editor just because that's where my my career and my ambitions and the people that I was working for led me. And before I knew it, I was, you know, editing news sections. And then I was, I started um, Spectrum. I was sort of leading up to that. Um, and the last few years when I was at Spectrum, I started to realize that I just was not satisfied with just editing other people's copy. Like I just really wanted to be reporting and writing my own stories. So you know, I, my, my kids were still young when I started writing again. So I started to do these um, long form stories about one a year. I started out kind of slow. And um, then I started to do more and more. This is all on the side freelance while I had a full time job. And then um, I would say two or three years ago, I started writing news for the New York Times again. And um, I just remembered how much I love news and how much I love writing fast and, and breaking stories and having scoops. And, um, and so when, when they wanted me to come join the times, I, I, I really, you know, didn't, wasn't sure that I wanted to because of financial reasons, but um, the call of reporting was very strong. That's, that's incredible to know, especially for many of us who might be considering a career in science journalism to know the different avenues. So thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, actually it's very useful, even if you're going to be a reporter, to have a little experience editing because I get along with pretty much all my editors and I don't mind being edited. And I think it's because I've been an editor and I know that it's, a, it's teamwork, as you mentioned, you know, we're my editor and I are a team. I said to him once something like, you know, thank you so much for making this story better or something like that. And he said, my job is to make your rivals quake when they see your byline. <laughs> that was such a lovely way to put it. Um, but that's, 
you know, it's you really have to think about it that way, that it's teamwork, because I do see a lot of young writers who come through who are very precious about their voice and don't want to be edited and, and take it very personally, take it as a personal attack when anything is changed. And that could not be further from the truth. Most editors are just trying to help you and trying to make it clearer to the audience. So I think it's helpful to have that that lens so that, you know, you, you don't react so strongly to every edit. I absolutely love that imagery of your editor saying, I want your rivals to like quake when they read your byline. That's quite the dynamic duo from what, how you're painting it. Um, another question that Deepak asked in the chat um, is, are there any specific challenges related to being a woman in science journalism, whether that's from your own personal experience or those of your colleagues? Um, I mean, there are, you know, what, field are there not challenges for a woman. Um, there are challenges in sort of disparity in pay um, that has come up a bunch. Um, so I have learned over the years, partly also from having hired people and knowing how the negotiation goes from the other side, to be very tough about um, making sure that I get paid what I'm worth. So for example, when the Times wanted to hire me, I said no at first because I just didn't um I mean it was it was real I wasn't just playing a game I just didn't think that I could make it work um for what they were offering because it would have been a substantial pay cut from what I was making before um but they found the money they always do um but I think that I you know I don't know this for a fact but it's generally true that people do offer a woman a lower starting salary than they would to a man um the other thing that I think happens a lot is that uh, women don't get as many of the plum uh, writing jobs, you know, the, 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 the best beats and the, the sort of the starring spots, um, you know, at a newspaper, it might be who gets front page stories, or, you know, if you're on a radio show, it could be, you know, who's, which producer gets most of their stories approved. Um, just about, you know, in any, any career that happens. And uh, there's just a, the mansplaining is pretty intense when you pitch stories, because if there are other people in the room, you know, you could pitch a story as a woman and that may not fly, but then a man pitches the same damn thing. And it's like, whoa, brilliant idea. So that does happen. Um, yeah, that's very frustrating. Um, Julia, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, sure. Hi, Apoorva. I'm Julia. I'm also on the keyboard for ASN. Um, I just kind of wanted to ask what it's been like for you to keep your productivity up during COVID. And if you have any advice for writers um, who are kind of dealing with the writer's block, you know, working from home and how you kind of attack this problem. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, it has not been easy, I will say, but, um, and I've said this in other places, but I think it's really true for me. I have been able to keep up my productivity during the pandemic because it's my job. It's sort of like I have compartmentalized to the point where my entire relationship with the virus is professional. This is a beast that I write about, that I want to know everything about, that I just think about in this objective sort of um cool, detached way. Because I think the reason a lot of people are blocked and the reason that um, it's hard to get work done when you're at home with this pandemic is because it is 
uh, overwhelming to think about what we are all going through. And I know a lot of writers who actually have quit, especially in the last few weeks. There has been just a, an epidemic of people leaving journalism saying, I am burned out after the last year. I can't do it anymore. And um, I personally know of like seven or eight people who have done that in the last few weeks. So it's a real issue um, to be reporting on something as you're living it. And there have been moments where it's been really hard. Like I've, you know, I have two children who are in school and I was writing about how the virus affects or doesn't affect children and what that means for schools. And meanwhile, my own kids um, were out of school and I really wanted them to be in school, um, you know, and right now my, my parents still live in India and I have an uncle in the hospital and, you know, I was worried about my parents getting vaccines. And while I'm writing about that, I'm also writing about India and about a variant that's circulating and how hard it is to get vaccines in India. So it, it can be all very murky and confusing and overwhelming, but I, I just try to keep those things as separate as I can and think about it as this is my job and this is what I write about. To follow up on that a bit, um, we just got news a few days ago, and I read the COVID briefing um, as well, that we may not ever reach herd immunity, um, and that no matter how many vaccines we make available, there you know these variants that are occurring, there's vaccine hesitancy where herd immunity might not be a concept that is even relevant anymore. Um, can you describe your reactions to finding that out and to having to share that with the public after we've held on hope for so long that herd immunity will be our way out? Yeah. And the answer to that question actually touches on a bunch of questions you all have asked me, um, because that's one that I, I had the idea for a while ago. Uh, in March, actually, I emailed my editor and said, I want to kind of look at herd immunity again. What's going on with that? And what, what are the vaccines? Um, you know, that, you know, we're vaccinating so many people. Uh, how far are we from herd immunity? What what about kids? What about variants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when I pitched it that way, I was not thinking we're not going to get to herd immunity. I didn't know. I just thought it was time to check back in with my sources. So I started to call them. I kept getting put off by other stories. So I didn't really get started in earnest until a couple of weeks ago. And this is where one of it was one of those um joint things where I had an idea, but then the masthead got really interested and wanted me to do it a certain way or, you know, wanted it at a certain time. They want, oh, this is great. We want you to do it in the next, you know, can you do it in the next week? That kind of thing. Um, and so I stepped up my reporting. I put everything else aside and I really sort of focused on that. I called a bunch of scientists that I talked to often and some new people I had never talked to. I called about 14 people and every single one of them said herd immunity is not attainable. I was just, um, the thing I was most surprised by, I think, you know, when I really sat back and thought about what they were saying, it makes sense. It makes sense because we know that there's a lot of hesitancy and because we know that there are more contagious variants and, and heart immunity threshold is the calculation is based on contagiousness. You have a more contagious variant, the percent you need to vaccinate goes up. So it all made sense, but I was not expecting to hear in such stark terms that we're not going to get there. And I was also not expecting to hear their certainty, like that they had all been thinking this for months and had not bothered to tell the rest of us. So that was the thing that really surprised me. And so I called um, Tony Fauci. He was my last stop. And I asked him, like, how come you all haven't been talking about this? <laughs> and um, 
you know, he, he said, well, we have, you know, if you go back and listen to all the White House briefings that I've done in the last two months, I've been saying, you know, forget about herd immunity, we should really just worry about vaccinating the highest risk people. And it's possible that he said that. But because um, I didn't go back and listen to all the White House briefings, for sure. But I, I think it's fair to say, just based on the massive reaction that article has had, that that message didn't come through. We all didn't know that um, herd immunity is not really an achievable goal anymore. So um, that's the kind of story that is completely unexpected. You think you're writing something, you think you're just gonna write like a status update sort of thing about this is where what people are thinking right now. And it actually turns out to be, oh, wait, by, by the way, this goal that we were all working towards for more than a year is not a thing anymore. Wow, yeah, that's very incredible that all of the scientists were so um, so stark about herd immunity not being attainable. Um, on a kind of related note, there's a message or um, a question from Sundaran about, um, so a lot of the students on this call will uh, want to be scientists or doctors. Uh, so as they grow in their careers, what can they do to educate the public on the benefits of science? Um, number one thing that scientists and doctors can do is answer reporters' calls. You know, of course, they have a responsibility to talk to the public on their own. Every time they talk to a patient, you know, in the case of a doctor, or every time they um, get a, a query from directly from a, a you know, lay person to a scientist, of course, you want to sort of share that information, you know, give talks, do all of those things. You know, if there's a um, a science communication sort of workshop or class that's offered by your university, please take it because they do help you figure out how to talk about your research in ways that are really accessible. But really the number one thing you can do is when journalists call you, take their call because even if you don't have the time or you don't have the um, ability or you think you don't have the ability to talk about your work, they will be able to. So um, yeah. I, I would say really take that as a civic responsibility. I guess now on the flip side of that, so it would be helpful for doctors and scientists to answer your calls as a science journalist, but as a science journalist, how do you decide what sources to reach out to? Like, how do you go about sourcing your pieces? That's a really good question. Um, it's been actually a little challenging during the pandemic because there were no coronavirus experts to begin with. So I um, was looking for people who had studied other coronaviruses, obviously not this one, or people who are virologists in general. Um, and it turned out actually that a lot of my sources from the HIV world switched to working on the coronavirus. So I knew all those people already. Um, and Twitter was incredibly helpful in figuring out early on who the people were, who knew what they were talking about. Um, I think one thing that's happened a lot during this pandemic, which I'm sure you guys have heard about, is that there's a lot of armchair expertise, a lot of people not staying in their lane, you know, um, nutritionists talking about infectious disease epidemiology, oncologists talking about viruses, all kinds of stuff. And um, there are a lot of journalists who are not science journalists at various publications who are doing their best but who often called the wrong kind of scientist. And if they're good scientists, if they are really um, principled, they should tell the, the journalists right away that they are not the ones who are qualified to talk about this, but that doesn't always happen. So in my case, 
um, you can always look them up. You can look up their work on PubMed. You can see what kind of papers they've published and if they really know what they're talking about. And then, you know, only call the people who are actually relevant for that part of the story. So I would never ask, for example, an immunologist to talk about um, the, uh, let's say, how, how widespread the virus is. And I, I wouldn't ask a virologist to talk about epidemiology. It's, you know, you have to sort of pick the right person for the right question. And I will say that I've been trying to call more women. It's, I've been trying to go at least half, but sometimes it's impossible because the men are just so much more eager to talk. So they are much faster to get back to you. And when you're on a deadline, it just ends up um, not always working out. But I have tried to make an effort to include more minorities, more women in my um, sources. Jiwoo, do you wanna ask you a question? Hi, um, I'm Jiwoo, I'm also on the ASN eBoard. And I know you talked a lot about how Twitter was a helpful tool for you. I was wondering if there was like a, on the flip side, like bad cons that Twitter like, or other social media platforms provide you with. Where do I begin? <laughs> Twitter has been really at times a nightmare for me. It's been, um, you know, I was not on Twitter very much at all. I really started using Twitter because of this job. I didn't use it as an editor very much at all. Um, and if I did, I just lurked. I just looked at what other people were saying. But as a reporter, and as a reporter who wanted to make sure that I was visible to scientists, to experts who I might need to contact, um, and to be visible to readers so that I can get more story ideas, see where the misinformation is or disinformation is to sort of lean into that and explain that in my stories. I wanted to be visible. Um, so I've gone from having like, I don't know, 3,500 followers to 50,000. And my experience has changed remarkably over the last year. It's just the number of trolls that I have to deal with is insane. Um, people love to hate on the New York Times and people love to hate on brown women. So I'm like a prime target. And um, we actually recently did this experiment, not on purpose, where um, Carl Zimmer, who's a friend and a colleague, also writes about very similar things. And he wrote about um, a variant that was starting to circulate in California. And then I wrote about one that was starting to circulate in New York. Almost identical stories. You know, you, you, it was like unintentionally, we basically replicated the same kind of thing. And he got no pushback. Nobody challenged him. Story was fine. I wrote about the same thing and I had people yelling at me about how irresponsible I was. How dare I write about this variant, um, including some scientists uh, and a lot of people in my mentions yelling at me. And it was just the, the contrast was so stark. And um, Carl actually ended up tweeting about it too, to show like how nice and polite people were when they talked to him and how absolutely nasty and ugly they were when they talked to me. The, the contrast, even among scientists, was just shocking. So um, there's a lot of that on Twitter. And I've learned to just either block people if they are profane in any way, they start to swear at me or they are insulting or they call me insane or, or dumb or, you know, any of those, like they start to get nasty. I, I just block them. If they are um, just annoying, I just mute them. But um, I have learned to block a lot of people because there are also some threats 
Um, you know, I've gotten a couple of really nasty threats by email, but also on Twitter. And I just, um, I report them to our security team, but I also just immediately block those people. I, I'm terribly sorry that that's something that just happens in this world, but that it's something that has to be your reality because of it. Um, I suppose on a lighter note, what is something that you were only able to do in your life because you were a science journalist? Hmm. Um, I mean, certain stories, you know, like I, when I was 11, there was um, a big, huge gas tragedy in, in Bhopal, India, where there was a gas leak that blinded a lot of people, that killed a lot of people. And there were all these really striking pictures of um, the, the children and the, and the people who died, you know, and I was just about at an age when I was really starting to pay attention to the news. And it, it just, I, those pictures have never left my mind. And I've always wondered what happened there. But as a science journalist, I was able to go. I went to Bhopal. I went to look at what the aftermath was. And it turns out that there are still people living near those abandoned factories and the chemicals from those factories have now leached into the groundwater. And so the communities that live really close to the factory, um, people have you know, lots of deformities, kids born with deformities, intellectual disability, uh, fertility problems, all kinds of um, health issues. There is actually not a single house that isn't touched by this uh, contamination in some way. And so you know, this is the kind of thing where you know of something that happened that was grossly unjust. Those people have um, unjust. Those people have never gotten compensation for what they went through. Um, they've they've gotten like some very piddly amount, like three hundred dollars from Dow, which is the company that um, owns the the factory over there, and um, they've never gotten their reparations. But um, I was still able to at least go tell their story and to to talk to them and to present it. Um, I wrote about this for The Atlantic. Um, nothing changed, to be honest, after that story came out. But at the very least, a lot more people became aware of it again. And, um, you know, people learned about how, what these people's lives are like. So that's something I wouldn't have been able to do unless I were a journalist. That's certainly something that's very important to do. Um, kind of related to that, what's the most rewarding part about being a science journalist? I get to ask questions, honestly. I mean, I'm, I'm a very curious person and I'm a little bit of a nosy person and a gossipy person. And it, when you're a reporter, those are strengths. So I can lean into all that stuff. I can ask questions endlessly. I can satisfy my curiosity. Um, it, you know, it's just an amazing blend of creativity and energy and impact and all these things that are just, I find, you know, very um, exciting and energizing. So I, I feel like I have license to be as stupid as I want to when I ask these questions, to be as naive as I want and ask whatever I'm thinking about. Well, um, we are almost out of time. So I just want to say thank you so much, Apurva, for taking the time to be with us tonight. And thank you to everyone in the audience for joining and participating. Feel free to use the chat to thank Apurva for her time and information. It's really my pleasure. You asked amazing questions. And I have to say, I was particularly impressed at 
how you navigated from a question that was big picture to small picture to emotional to professional to you know sad to happy very nice job balancing those thank you for great journalists (laughs) well that's what we're practicing to do at the same time we would also like to thank joy wan for her behind the scenes tech support Ji Wuhan and Julia Zabinska for their help in organizing this event, as well as all the members of ASN for helping to share this talk. So we're sending links in the chat right now where you can explore Purva's pre-pandemic and also pandemic writing. If any inner students in the audience would like to try their hands at science communications with the ASN, resources are also being sent in the chat. And um, we're also, we'd also greatly appreciate it if you could fill out this short follow-up form uh, just to thank Apoorva for her time and provide us with feedback on the events format. Thank you everyone so much again for joining us and we hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thank you so much all for all of you for listening and for having me here. <laughs>